You know, <clears throat> I was thinking as I was working on this this week, what, what would be your definition of the perfect life? If somebody laid that out and you had a chance to write that down and think about it, what would be the stuff that came to the top of your list? You know, maybe something as simple as, hey, no alarm clock. I know that many times the alarm clock goes off way too early. Maybe it would maybe you'd say, well, you know, the idea that there'd be no potential dangers around the corner if I went around the wrong corner at the wrong time. They just I wouldn't have to worry about those things in life. Or or maybe the idea of, you know, it'd be nice not to have to work so hard just to make a living and make it from day to day and and try to scrape together a few pleasures in this life and, and maybe be able to actually have some leisure time. Maybe some of you say, boy, it'd be great if I could take a real vacation. What about a place where all of that were possible? A place where there's no care in the world. A place where you can live life with zero guilt. A perfectly peaceful life. I mean, think about this. Even your lawn was weed and thorn-free. No ants to mess up your picnic. No little tiny winged vampires we call mosquitoes that get you when you step outside during the summertime because they want to suck your blood. In fact, a purely, truly perfect life. Well, the truth is, Adam and Eve had that. They lived in a perfect place. A place created just for them. Yet it was lost. And we're still paying that price. I began to think about that and my mind came to a question that that, you know, I, this is nothing new. We've probably all thought about this as, at some time, but I never quite framed it this way. And the question I kind of wrote down was, how do you throw away perfect? I mean, think about it. Their actions that day, it's what they did. They took perfect, they wadded it up, and they tossed it aside. How do you throw away perfect? Because as we talked about last week, it can never be the same moment. There never be the same moment when in the wrong direction. Things were never the same from that point. And, and as you think about it, how did Satan convince them to throw away perfect? And it really is pretty simple. He set a trap that I'm calling the focus trap. Because it hit me this week as I was kind of revisiting this scripture that, that literally, think about this, they had everything. And how did Satan mess that up? How did he convince them to throw away? He did it very simply by getting them to turn their eyes and attention off of all the blessings that they had to the one thing that they couldn't have. 
How many times have people thrown away a great life all because somewhere, somehow, along the way, the enemy got them their focus off of the blessings that they had to the forbidden. Somehow thinking that what they had was going to be better if they could just taste the forbidden. Call it the focus trap. Let's look at this. Genesis 3, 6. We know that God created, made creation. It was beautiful. I mean, everything we read about it, it was perfect. And they were placed in the garden in just this incredible life. And they had really just one rule. Here's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it, it'll all be good. But then we read in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That one act threw it all away. But I, just think about this. I, I, I underline the part where it says she saw the tree and saw that it was good for food. See what was happening. Everything was good. But she let her mind and her attention and her focus become on the tree that she was never supposed to touch. And the more she looked at it, the more she longed for it, Till finally that temptation became too much. And this is the thing, this is the original tragic tale. He got them to focus on what they didn't have while overlooking all the incredible blessings they had around them. And the truth is, we have an enemy that's good at traps. And if anybody's ever done any trapping, you don't lay a trap out in the open. Every now and then you might see something on the internet where some idiot purposely puts their foot in a bear trap. But for the most part, when there's a trap laid out in the open, you just go around it. You don't mess with it. You don't touch it. You're like, "Uh -uh, I ain't doing that. But somehow our enemy is good at, at hiding traps. They're disguised. They're baited with something that is that the unsuspecting prey really, really wants or they think that they want. And he does that so often. He sits traps. And we see people. You probably in your own life, you've probably seen somebody. Have somebody that you know, somebody that you care for, that you, that you look around. And you can almost see the moment that their attention turns to something forbidden, something they shouldn't have their eyes on. And you can watch them as they begin to go towards that. And everything in you is saying, don't, don't do that. Don't go that. Don't, don't fall for that. It's going to lead to destruction. You watch them step after step until snap and they're caught. You're like, I saw that. Why didn't they see that? Well, the truth is, it's pretty easy for us to see it from the outside, but the enemy is good at getting us to focus on something that we desire. And we walk headlong towards that trap. Because God loves us so much. 
we need to make no mistake, there's a very real enemy that we have. He's not made up. His whole purpose, his whole desire, as Scripture says, is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And think about this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this way, but he has such a hatred for God that I believe that just the fact that we're made in his image is all he needs to hate each and every one of us. I believe every time he sees one of us, it's just another reminder of what he lost. And the fact that he loved us enough to send his own son to die on the cross, to pay for our way back to him, no doubt makes him just burn with anger even more. And he desires to destroy you. Let me tell you, there are no deals to be made there. I see people all the time think that somehow they're making a deal with the devil. Or they think that somehow they're going to work out something or you know you hear some people say i'd rather party in hell with the devil and you know or whatever that saying is this goofiness and you know what they don't understand is he ain't in charge of nothing down there he's just going to be the number one inmate but our enemy's crafty and he sets traps But if we're honest, it all comes down to our focus. Ran across this nugget. Psalm 25, 15 says this. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. There's the answer to avoiding the trap. Keep your focus ever on the Lord and and when you're about to, you say, oh, and he'll pluck. I mean, think, just picture that. Pluck my feet out of the net. But here's the warning I want you to remember. If you remember anything, I want you to remember this. Write it down, put it on your mirror, whatever you have to do. But you always drift towards what turns your head. You always drift towards what turns your head. You don't believe me? We live, most of us, a lot of us live pretty close to I-30, right? If you ever notice, when there's one wreck, there's five. Why? Somebody's going down the road. Oh, wreck! We always drift towards what turns our head. It's what we do. And so I begin to look at this, I begin thinking, okay, what about how did Satan get them from where they were at to throw this all away? How did he make that happen? Well, is there something there we can learn? Is there some way we can step back and look at the big picture and say, okay, what is it that he did? How did he do it? In what order? Is there some pattern there that we can see that we can begin to recognize when it's happening so that we don't step into that focus trap? Because as clever as he is, as much credit as he gets for trapping people and getting them to step into his traps and messing up lives, the truth is he's not that original. You see him do the same thing over and over and over to different people. These same steps that take place here, he does again and again and again in people's lives and they fall for it again and again and again. 
Step one is he desires to get us doubting the divine. Notice one of the first things he said in that situation. Did God really say? Boy, that is a question that ought to bring warning, fire alarms, and bells. Because from the time we're old enough, what do we do? We ask questions. Every little kid goes through that thing of why. And you give the answer. And then they contemplate your answer and they say, but why? And you give the next answer and they say, but why? And you keep going and you keep going. Now, I'll never forget one of the things that I said I would never, ever, ever do was say, because I said so. Because my parents did, right? But when they keep saying, but why enough times, finally you get to the point you say, because I said so. (laughs) Don't you know God does the same thing with us sometimes? We question and we question and we question and he says, because I said so. That's the first step to the trap. That's the first step to turning our heads for him to say, did God really say? And we begin to question. We let a little, that question begin to creep in. And once we doubt, our focus can begin to shift. Let's look at Genesis 3, 4, and 5. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the doubt that he begins to cast. Not only say, did God really say, but now he's beginning to put in in a little bit of doubt, a little bit of question about God's motives. He just doesn't want you to be smarter. He just doesn't want you to be more like him. He really doesn't have your best interest at mind. And we look at this and we think, Eve, we're we're watching her walk towards this trap. We're thinking, Eve, don't do it. Don't do it. Even though we know how the story turns out, don't do it. Just like in a movie and they're playing dramatic music and you're telling the person not to go in the room. Everybody can see it, and you can yell, don't do it all you want, but it's going to happen. Or else it wouldn't be a movie. But what is he doing? We, we're all guilty at some level at some times of questioning God's motives. And that's one of the steps that the enemy likes to get us to. Okay, did he really say that? Is there really going to be this consequence? He's not really out for your best interest. You see real life examples where he lies to people and say, this won't really destroy your marriage. This won't really get you addicted. Oh, I know other people get addicted to that, but it won't happen to you. 
Oh, they have plenty. They have so much. It doesn't matter. You know what? Matter of fact, they ought to be ashamed of themselves for having more than you have. So it's okay for you to go and take one from them even though it doesn't belong to you. You have a right to it. And we can go through every sin we can imagine. And we can see again and again and again that he begins, the enemy begins to get us to doubt his motives and begin to doubt he wants the best for us. And we get our focus off the blessings and get them on the things that are forbidden and we're headed for trouble. He's the master deceiver. I mean, notice how sly and how simple and how non-aggressive that he begins to move her step by step away that's the way he works he's not going to show up in your room he's not going to appear on your shoulder you're not going to recognize the pitchfork and the pointy ears he's just going to begin to unravel that doubt and get you begin to question and see that's what he did with her he began to shake her. I mean, Eve at first answered right. As you read the story, her resolve got a little weaker and a little weaker and a little weaker. See, Satan desires to cast doubt on the goodness of God and the good of his intentions for us and for you. And when he does that, that's the first step in our turning our head to the wrong things. We're all guilty of it. We can point fingers at Eve all we want, but there's probably not a one of us at some point. God, why haven't you answered this the way I wanted you to? Why hasn't this happened sooner? And we begin to go through these things and we begin to maybe wonder, well, maybe God really doesn't have my best interest at heart. Can I tell you? He always does. Sometimes you just have to step back and say, God, I don't see it. I don't understand it. I don't know why this is taking this long. I don't know why we're going through this. But you see the bigger picture than I do, and all I can do is trust. Years ago, we had the opportunity a few years back to go to the grand opening of the Ark Encounter up in Kentucky. It was pretty cool. It was neat. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you read the story about the, the ark and the size of it, but when you walk up and you see one built to scale, I mean, it's a jaw-dropping moment. I mean, you, you still be a couple miles away and you, and you see it. And you go walking in. And I know all the doubt that's been tried to be cast on that story. Oh, there's no way they could have got all those animals in the way. There's no way they could have managed this. Well, no way they could have managed that. But you go in and you tour it. And you see how with the technology of the day, how the whole thing could have been pulled off right there in front of you. And you're like, this is cool. But I took a picture of it. This was in, right as you walk in, this sign was hanging above one of the doors. If I can convince you that the flood was not real, then I can convince you that heaven and hell are not real. See, if he can begin to cast doubt on any part of this, 
It's like pulling the thread on that old garment that you think you're just going to pull the thread. Next thing you know, you're unraveling the whole thing. See, I am convinced nobody will ever convince me anything differently. This is accurate and right from cover to cover. This is the foundation you can build your life on. But if he can get you to question God's word, did God really say, yes, he did? Because if you question, you begin to entertain wrong ideas. And when we walk through something, and maybe even begin to reach out, and, and we, we, you do something, you focus on something that you know, you know that it's forbidden, and, and you touch it a little bit, and when lightning doesn't strike immediately, you're like, oh, it must be okay to do this. No, it's not. See, our enemy knows that we always drift towards the direction our head is turned. And if he can get us to doubt and get us to begin to look at the forbidden, that's the beginning of a wrong direction. So what, what are you questioning today? Did God really say there's no gods before him? Did God really say that Jesus was born of a virgin? That's one of the ones you hear some debate over. Oh, that really didn't happen that way yet. Yes, it did. Did Jesus really come back to life in a resurrected body? Yes. Did God really say the wages of sin is death, both spiritually and physically? Absolutely. That God really said that Jesus was the only way to find eternal life. That's a big one today. Oh, there's all these directions. You can get to God from all places. I heard somebody say one time, just like you want multiple flowers in a bouquet, God wants all these religions so that he can have the aroma of all the... Very... Did God really say that if a man dies in his sins, he will go to hell? Absolutely. Let me say this. And the people don't talk about this city much anymore, but hell is real, and people really will go there, and it will last for eternity. Yes. Amen. Did God really say for us to bring some of the first fruits to the storehouse in the form of our tithe? Yes, he did. See, when we can answer, this is what I want you to get. When we can answer all those questions in full faith, it makes it very, very hard for us to fall into the focus trap. If Eve had been just a little more resolute, the trap would have been obvious. Secondly, Let me say this before I move on. Doubting is deadly. It won't hurt me. Yes, it will. Secondly, if he can get us fantasizing about the forbidden. In other words, obsessing over the things that aren't meant for us. We already talked about it. She began to look at it. 
At some point along the long line, it wasn't just this forbidden thing. At some point on the line, you know that she, we have no indication at how long this took, but at some point, you know that she began to walk by and begin to look at it and look at it and get a little closer and try to see what it smelled like that she just did until finally to the place that that desire grew. It was just something that was because her attention was off of all the blessings and all that she had. See, once we doubt God's pure intentions for us, our focus shifts. We begin to entertain the forbidden. And we convince ourselves that God is just out to keep us from having fun. How many of you would admit that you used to think that about your parents? They just don't want me to have any fun. Every time I want to do something fun, they come on some rule why I can't do it. Can I say this? We haven't grown up as much as we'd like to think. We still look at our Heavenly Father and we think that same thing. He just doesn't want me to have fun. James put it this way, James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What does it bring forth? Death. See, Satan's the master at this. I mean, he even has a huge percentage of the world convinced that he doesn't even exist. Even though we see the reality of evil all around us. That's why we need God's word in our life. David put it wonderfully in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There is something about the Word of God. I'm telling you, this thing is alive. And it's so easy for all of us to let the busyness of life cause us to put things in different priorities and different levels. And we, we think, well, I do really don't have time. You don't have time not to. And it doesn't take as much time. I'm telling you, even... 20, 30 minutes of just reading his word. If even, it, there's just something about it that brings life. There's something about it that, that soaks in. There's something about it as we begin to hide it. You notice that David didn't say, I put the word of God in my head. He said, I've hidden it in my heart. When you let it sink in and you let it become a part of you, and when you do that on a regular basis, it becomes a part of you, and all of a sudden you'll find you can spot Satan's traps a mile away because it's part of you. When it's part of you, your eyes turn their focus away from the forbidden. It becomes detestable to you. Take him at his word. I dare you to ask yourself this morning, is there something that I'm focused on right now that I know I shouldn't be? Is there some aspect of God's word that I've begun to doubt? 
Am I questioning that God truly wants what's best for me? If you can answer yes to any of those, your head has been shifted in the wrong direction. You're focusing on the wrong things. And when we take our focus off Jesus, that's when we begin to sink. I, I thought of that. My mind immediately went to Peter. One of my favorite Bible stories. Just the idea of walking on water with Jesus just is cool to me. All Peter catches grief because he took his eyes off Jesus and, and he began to sink. And that's, that's part of it. But I always say, man, Peter had guts to get out of the boat when nobody else would. Lord, let me, let me come. And I've often thought of this. This is, and some of you may have seen me do this before, but this is just an image I have. There is just something about having enough faith in Jesus to pick up your leg and put it over the side of the boat and put it on the water and expect it to land somewhere solid. That's just cool. And then to put all your weight on that leg and lift the other one over and expect the same thing to happen and begin to walk. I mean, that was, that's just cool. And we know he got out there, and somewhere along the way, he took his eyes off Jesus. But it's really what we're talking about. All of a sudden, his focus went from Jesus. His head got turned to the waves and the wind. And somewhere along the line, he realized, hey, I can't do this. You're right, you can't. But if you're focused on him, you can. And it's the same thing. So the question we need to answer ourselves is where's my head turned right now? Because he, the enemy wants to change your focus. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the God, of the Lord, God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? What a question. This point, Eve had sinned. This point, she had given some to Adam, and he ate it too. It's somewhere along the line that walking by and looking at the forbidden fruit led to, I've got to touch it. I've got to taste it. And everything was lost. Perfection was tossed aside. I don't know about you. You know, I can't say that I would because I wasn't in their position, but I picture, man, I'd have been putting up barbed wire, a fence. A, if there had to be a gate, I would punch in some code blindly so I could never remember it. Something. But yet when you continue to look and you continue to entertain, you continue to think somehow, some way, that is the thing that I'm missing from my life to make me happy. I mean, having perfection and thinking that somehow that one thing was going to make it better. But yet we do it all, we, we do it so often as people. And so in this situation, they've fallen, they've lost it all. And God comes along and he asks the question, where are you? 
God didn't need the information. That question was for Adam and Eve. Where are you? Look where this decision brought you. From what you had to where you are. I used to come for this walk with you, and there was no shame. There was no fear. Now, all of a sudden, you're afraid of me. Now, all of a sudden, there's shame. Where are you? That's the question we have to answer for ourselves. Where are we? Because so many times... The enemy sets these traps. And we get our eyes focused on the wrong things. And we find ourselves further away than we meant to be. In a situation we didn't like. And now all of a sudden, what used to be this beautiful, intimate relationship with God is now filled with shame and fear. And instead of wanting to draw close to him, you want to run. Let's look at verse 10, 11. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knew that they had. Think about the question. Who told you that you were naked? What does the nakedness mean? It means their shame. How often do we cross that line? How often do we get caught in the trap? <clears throat> and all of a sudden we realize the shame. The shame comes in. And I see people so many times that that shame, that sudden fear of God keeps them to responding to the very thing that they need most. I'm ashamed. Lord, I, I, I hear this so often. I know I need to get back to God. I know I need to get back in church, but I got some things I need to clean up first. Wait a minute, I is the wrong word. He does the cleaning up. We have to acknowledge our shame, and despite our fear and our shame, we have to step out of the bushes, step out of our hiding place, and approach him with humility. Because he delights in forgiving. He delights in it. I mean, look at the story. What an incredible story that, that Jesus, that God would come along and he's having this conversation with them. Now, there's going to be some things, you know, we're, we're all good at pointing the blame. We can all make up our excuses of how we ended up where we're at. I mean, even when God's talking to them, you get the excuses. I love how that Adam immediately was that woman you gave me. And then Eve says, what's that serpent you created? The serpent couldn't point because he didn't have fingers, but <laughs> but we're great at passing the buck. 
But in reality, Scripture tells us it's when we get our focus off focus and we turn to the things we're not supposed to look at and we become enticed and it's by art. It says, we just read it. We can't say the devil made me do it. It clearly says by our own desires we are enticed. Oh, he's the one that says, hey, look over here. Ooh, pretty. But it's not. And we walk through those things and we and we, we know that the wages of sin is death. But somehow we think we'll be the exception and the shame, the trap is sprung and we find ourselves in that situation and so many times I see that people because of their fear and their shame they won't acknowledge their need that forgiveness. Let me say this. No matter how far you've gone, he delights in forgiveness. So much so that scripture tells us that when one sinner repents and turns, that heaven celebrates. You're not the exception. You haven't gone too far. You're not irredeemable. Wherever you are in life, he's still got that perfect, best future for you if you will just step out and accept it. The enemy will always set a trap for you. He will always try to tell you that your life will be better if you'll just go after this thing and after that thing and after all these other things because he knows if you have, once you set your eyesight on Jesus and you really step out and you really follow through, that he's lost. So there's always that something else that's going to make you happy. But he has so much better for you. Don't fall into the focus trap. Because you always drift towards what turns your head. Let me say this. There's shame when we get caught in the trap. And it's so easy for us to look around and think... If I deal with this, if I step out in the open with my shame, my fear of God, and my sin, people are going to think less of me. Anybody that serves Christ at some point had to deal with that. Heaven's going to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate. Because we're all in that boat. Either we've been there or we're there now. And he wants what's best for you. I'm going to say this and we'll bring it to a close. Don't be like the lawyer that I read a little joke about. Pastor had this friend that was a lawyer. And the lawyer got a bad medical diagnosis and was on his deathbed and 
And the pastor's like, man, this is my last chance to reach this guy. And so he's headed up to the hospital, and he's praying the whole way, Lord, do something. I need to know what to say. And he walks in the hospital room, and there's the lawyer laying in the bed reading the Bible. He's like, all right, step in the right direction. So he goes, hey, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm cramming for my final exam. Also, I was checking to see if there's any loopholes in here I can exploit. Wrong answer. Let me tell you, there's no loopholes. Jesus is the only way. And what it boils down to, let me tell you what the final exam is. Real simple, I can boil it down to one question. I believe God's going to look at you and say, what did you do with my son? Did you accept him or did you reject him? That's all that's on the exam. I believe he's calling today. And I want everybody here just to bow your heads for just a moment. Because I believe that as I was walking through this today, I believe that this is so universal to the way that Satan plays the game that as I was talking about that thing that gets us distracted, that forbidden fruit that we put our eyes on, that probably many people in here in the room, you knew exactly what that was in your life. And somewhere along the line, you, you allowed your focus to get off the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to so that one thing that's forbidden. You need to get your mind back in the right place. Maybe for some of you, it's just you're just at that point that you begin to look at it, you begin to wonder about it, you've, you begin to look past all the blessings that He's given you, and you're focusing on that thing, and you're thinking, that's the one thing that's going to make me happy. And you're just at that entertaining stage. Now's the time to walk away from that trap. it sprung there may be some here that that trap has already sprung and you're caught and you know you're caught and now you're in that mold where there's the shame there's the fear of God and everything in you wants to run everything in you wants to remain hidden and I'm telling you the way to get rid of that is to step out of the bushes and say Lord here here I am such as I am you know what the great part of that story is it says that God responded by clothing them by covering them with animal skin. Think about what that means. God made a sacrifice to clothe them. Right then and there. He said, it's okay. 
I will cover that shame in my expense. That was the first little arrow kind of pointing to what Jesus was going to do. That there would one day be a sacrifice that would cover it once and for all. But when he calls, you've got to be willing to step out of the bushes and say, look, I'm done hiding.